Welcome to On The Verge. This podcast will highlight interviews from entrepreneurs, musicians, and professional golfers. It will center around what tools they have used to help them reach their dreams, how they use golf to further their career, whether it be for escape from the rigors of their profession or to build more business, and how the communitas of wine, music, and golf enrich their lives. This is all about the enjoyment of life, rising above the struggles, and stretching past the best to be better every day. On The Verge. On The Verge is presented by Cure, cannabis used for research and education. The medical industry is steadfastly looking to help millions of patients that suffer from injuries related to repetitive motion, sports, trauma, and many other orthopedic injuries, as well as skin disorders, mental disorders, cancer, and osteoporosis, to name only a few of the other underlying conditions that billions suffer from each day. On average in this country, we have 10,000 people turning 65 every day. With the cost of pharmaceutical medicines increasing, patients deserve natural alternatives that are not only more cost-effective, but also safer for them and society. Cure is focused on providing natural alternatives to aid with current or previous medical conditions. Cure does this by providing a therapeutic properties of natural cannabinoid formulations for multiple uses, whether internally or externally. Ask your physical therapist or your primary care physician if cannabinoids are right for you. Or check out their website at www.curemich.com. Cure, cannabis used for research and education. On the Verge is also brought to you by Green Scene. Green Scene is a family-owned company recognized as the Sizzle Award winner for outdoor living in Williamson County. We design and construct areas to blend with the natural landscape of your yard. That can include outdoor spaces, gazebos, fire pits, outdoor kitchens, and yes, putting greens. We understand the importance of your home. That's why we never settle for anything but the best. Green Scene also provides multiple teams with professional landscape maintenance, irrigation, and outdoor lighting. Welcome to On The Verge, today's special guest. This is a longtime friend. He's really stuck with me when I really needed him. He's one of the, the best professional golf professionals, PGA pros, in the state of Tennessee. He is currently a general partner at the River Club in Clarksville. Great friend of mine, Jim Shack. Jim, how are you today, buddy? Oh, I'm doing great, Virgil. And I tell you what, it's such an honor for me to be here. You know, of, of all the uh, professionals in Tennessee that teach, you are by far, by far the finest, and, well, and I, I look very, very much up to you, and I, I follow you, and you know when you speak, I listen. Well, you're very kind, sir. I'm very honored to have you on here. One of the, the, the great stories that we want to get into is you spend a lot of time with Mo Norman. We're going to get into what most people consider the greatest ball striker of all time, if not the greatest. He's on the Mount Rushmore, for sure, of ball strikers. As, as it pertains to your, your life as a PGA professional, and you look back over the, the years that you've put into the game, what does golf mean to you? Well, golf is, is, is everything in my life. I mean, uh, you know, I, when I get up in the morning, I can't wait to get to work. I'm 72 now. Mm-hmm. Excuse me, 71. My wife always gets on me because I, I say 72. I guess my <laughs> mathematics isn't very good. But I'm 71, and, you know, I, I still enjoy going to the, to the golf course, teaching, of course, um, my, my playing ability at, at the age I'm at right now has, has declined quite a bit. You know, um, I was fortunate enough when I, when I came to Tennessee from Florida, 
I, I was actually a very good player, and uh, I decided in '88 uh, that I would try to uh, play a couple of tour events. So, as you know, the, in in the section here, we've got what we call four spotting. Yeah. Where, where you four spot, you know, you may have 20 guys or 30 guys or whatever it may be uh, playing for four spots to get into the tour event uh, of that of that uh, at that time. Yeah. And at that time, there was only uh, two tour events going on. One was, of course, the St. Jude. Yeah. And the other one was called the Hamilton Classic, which was in Knoxville. Mm. Uh, and I managed a four spot for uh, for both those tournaments, uh, which which I was r- really happy about. And of course, I played. I didn't make the cut in either tournament, but uh, just being out there around the, the, the tour players and, and talking with them and all, it, it's really uh, it was really quite an exciting time. And uh, to see how the tour pro- professionals are treated at each spot yeah. is really amazing. Where did you play Memphis? Did you play Colonial? Or I, I played uh, at. Uh, where it's at right oh, now. Oh, Southwind? Yeah, Southwind, yeah. Oh, right on. Yeah, and, uh, you know, that, that that was a great experience. And in fact, I I had a little bit of notoriety, and maybe we can even talk a little bit about this, but uh, I, for, uh, let's see, that was 88, until DeChambeau came along, I was the only player to uh, play the PGA Tour with all six irons. I, oh, uh, all clubs at a six iron length? Yeah, I actually uh, owned one of the patents. Oh, wow. to to the EQL, which was uh, manufactured by Tommy Armour mm-hmm. uh, back in uh, 87, 88. I believe that's still probably the uh, best-selling golf club in the history of history of golf. You know, they had Freddie Couples, M- Michelle McCann. They they had a, Davis Love III. Yeah, they had Davis Love at that time. Um, so uh, to to be able to get a golf club manufactured by Tommy Armour that, you know, wasn't exactly what the 845 was, but uh, it was uh, it was quite a success uh, during its time. And uh, Tommy Armour uh, actually quit manufacturing the EQL with the success of the 845. Yeah. It was, uh, you know, a, a, a decision by the company that, you know, they were just overwhelmed by the 845. Yeah with sales so uh they decided to go that way but uh anyway i, I was the only player to play the pga tour with equal length clubs until dechambeau come along what do you what do you think the the great part of that is because to me what i see dechambeau struggle with is he struggles with uneven lies uh especially the downhill ball below his feet lie i should say and is it's the the clubs are so upright now this might be just for him but he really struggles around the green with his wedge play, and he really struggles on off, on uneven lies. Did you have the same issues, or do you think it's a DeChambeau only situation? Uh, I was actually pretty good, pretty good with the short game. Uh, on the uh, on the wedges, we had a um, very long grip. The grip was about eight inches longer than a standard grip. Oh wow! So so that you could you could choke down and hit the shots, and of course. You know the, the way you have to weight those clubs. The, the short irons need a higher CG mm-hmm. to keep the ball flight down because the leverage is so good with the with the with the longer shaft. It really gets the ball up in the air. Oh. So you, you need to have the ability to be able to come down a little bit on the on the shaft and all to uh, to to help with the with with the flight height. Yeah. And of course, 
going to the longer irons to, uh, of course, back then we had two irons. So going to the two iron, the CG had to go very, very low, much like uh, hybrids are today. Got it. You see? And, and that's kind of how, how when I uh, created the clubs, I had to use a whole lot of uh, flow weighting. In fact, when I was uh, designing them, Armour had sent me uh, oh, hundreds and hundreds of shafts and and many many 845 heads yeah well i had to put those 845 heads on on grinders and take weight out of them uh, i might use a, a bolt and and take an epoxy it on the back of the club up or down trying to f- create the right shot dispersion wow uh, and i don't know exactly what dechambeau has got as far as the the, the weightings in those heads. Uh-huh. You know, I actually got this from from Mo Norman. Mm-hmm. Uh, one day I was on the driving range with Mo, and and let me back up. He he would come to Florida uh, because that's where the Canadian PGA headquarters were. They were in Titusville, Florida, and mm-hmm. I was the head professional there. And uh, consequently, I got to spend a lot of time with Mo, and. I noticed him one day on the driving range. He had a two iron in his hand, and he's ripping two irons out there. And he's taking about two and, a half, two and a half inches or three inches out of the length of the club. He's choking down and hitting it. And I, I, I asked him, I said, Mo, I said, why are you doing that? He said, I'm the only player in the world that can swing the club on the, swing, on the same swing plane because, as you know, the shaft – the club at address basically sets up the swing plane. Mm-hmm. But that way he could swing all of his irons on the same swing plane. And he said, every shot I hit, I can swing the same. I don't have to have nine or ten different planes mm-hmm. because of the shaft angle. Mm-hmm. So, you know, all those clubs in that EQL were all set at the, at the same lie angle. And uh, uh, thusly, you know, theoretically, yeah. theoretically. You could swing them on the same on the same plane. Interesting, because that's what DeChambeau en- en- enlists himself. I know that he they take take the loft out. Like his clubs are significantly delofted, and he talked about it that he has to do that to keep the ball flight down. Right. Well, that the the way I did that was I just flowed the flowed the weighting up or down uh-huh. in the golf club. Hmm. So I think that there's the there's the difference between you know technology today probably allows them to do things that weren't even thought of in 1988 which yeah. is kind of hard to believe yeah but at the end of the day i'm sitting there thinking you know that's 34 years ago jim yeah wow that hurts my feelings just <laughs> think about that. you know speaking of mo norman you know at the end of the day not many americans know much about mo norman you know they know that he was quirky they know that uh he was widely considered a showstopper on the driving range uh, but probably underperformed per record that he could have for as great of a ball striker as he was. But you know him personally, spent a lot of time with him, and obviously you watched him hit thousands and thousands of golf balls. I think everybody would love to hear stories about the greatness of Mo Norman and what he was like as a person and as a golfer. Well, Mo was Mo was different. Yeah, um, he he was like like Rain Man. Um, uh, and I, I can't remember exactly what they call that. What, are, what do they call it? Savant. Yeah. yeah. Mo would. Um, he may not take a a uh, a bath for a couple of days, and he may come to the driving range 
dressed in the same clothes for a week and have those sweat marks on on he always wore long sleeve turtleneck sh- uh, shirts mm-hmm. and have sweat marks on, on those things and the golf professionals didn't feel that that was the proper way a golf professional should be mm-hmm. so the golf professionals themselves shunned mo from a person from a personality uh, standpoint sure uh, they loved his ball striking and everything, and he was an absolute legend in Canada. He won uh, n- uh, numerous PGA championships, uh, and and actually, I think he owned 57 course records. Wow. Um, and uh, I can't remember exactly what the numbers are, but he he amassed a heck of a lot of hole in ones. Uh, but he he just he didn't fit. Yeah, the the what a golf professional should be. Mm-hmm. So they really they they really shunned him, and and I was really amazed at at, at that because you know I had those Canadian tour players down there. Jim Nelford uh, was was one at that time, um, but uh, they they actually just didn't like Mo. Huh. And and I, I didn't like that because you know I I thought he, I thought he, of course I knew he was different, but I I really um, became a good friend with him, and he opened up with me about a whole bunch of stuff uh, about the golf swing, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, he, funny thing goes I, I may have a scorecard on my card or I may have a, a a match an old matchbook or something. Every time Mo said something, I wrote it down. Mm-hmm. I've got a I've got a, a a file at home that's full of just one-liners that <laughs> that Mo talked about in, in the golf swing, and uh, well, at, at any rate, he uh, he was by far the best I have ever seen. Uh, Lee Trevino was building a golf course uh, just down the street from where we were in in Titusville, Florida, there at Royal Oak, and of course Lee spent a lot of time with Mo. They were very 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 good friends, and. Um, you know they uh, they just camaraded quite nicely, and uh, it was always a lot of fun to stand there uh, as a third person sure. to listen to the conversations of these two. But uh, Lee actually liked him very much, and in fact, uh, Lee was quoted as saying, "If if Mo would have had a manager, that he may have won every tournament in the world." Wow. Uh, he he was he was that that good a ball striker. Mo didn't like to putt. He hated putting. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, uh, one time Mo said, uh, "You can take a secretary out of the office, hand her a golf club, and she's never hit never hit a putter before, and she can make a twenty foot putt, but she can't hit a two iron." <laughs> so, <laughs> so he, you know, that was just kind of the way Mo, Mo thought. Yeah. A lot of the great ball strikers have that kind of same feeling. Mm-hmm. You know, Hogan felt the same way. He said they didn't think that the, the putting should have the same equal value as the ball striking. And, you know, Trevino, Trevino was a really good putter, though. Yeah. yeah I mean, he – but I, I just find it interesting. Like, the ball strikers, the, the great ball strikers, really don't like putting because they can hit a perfect putt and it bounce offline and not go in the hole. That's right. And that right, makes yeah. their head blow off their shoulders. Whereas a player like Snedeker, a player like Faxon or Stan Utley, that they're such great putters, and for whatever reason, they don't get affected by putts not going in as long as they felt like they hit a pure putt. 
they never hit the ball good enough in their mind to get out there, but yet those three players, Snedeker, oh, the better of the three as it pertains to how you know how many wins and the money that he's won. But I always find it fascinating. Like the guys who absolutely stripe it aren't necessarily the best putters, and the ones that that make it out there that aren't great ball strikers, they have a they have a love and affection for the short game and the putting that is pretty uncanny, and they see it differently than everybody else. When you've been around Mo, what were some of his key his keys to the golf swing as he saw it in his mind? Uh, it was really all about the swing plane itself, uh, really and truly. Uh, when, when he f- w- would come down, say, hip high with his hands in his downswing, he wanted his shaft in his right forearm. If you're looking on a track man, mm-hmm. he, wanted, he wanted to see that shaft and that right forearm on the, on the same plane. He, he equated it much to throwing a, throwing a ball or, mm-hmm. or, or whatever you do. You know, and, and it was simply a matter of getting it on that plane and then making the rotation through through the through, through the ball. Sure. You know. Do you feel like, uh, like to me, when, I, when you look at the best ball strikers, when that delivery position, when the right elbow is tucked in, that, that shaft is usually bisecting the right forearm. It, some players yes. are a little bit steeper. You don't really find too many people under the forearm. Because that gets it in hook and blockville, but right, then, then you got to then you got to flip it. Yeah, yeah. But you'll see it. Most of the best ball strikers have it on their forearm, and the guys are notorious faders that figured out how to just cut the ball around. I have it maybe on the high side of their forearm. That's exactly right. Yeah, that, and, and again, because the more vertical you are with the swing plane, the less the club wants to close at the bottom. The more it wants to stay stay open. Yeah. The 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 flatter you you get with the golf swing, the, the more it acts like a closing door. And releases or promotes a hook or, yeah. or, or or whatever. Of course, you know finding finding that 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 perfect swing plane, which allows you just to turn without manipulation with your with your hands or your forearms or whatever, is going to create the, the, the straightest shot. I, I sure. think you would agree with that. 100%. In fact, I've heard I've heard you when you were given lessons. You 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 talk about that. Yeah, I find it fascinating. Like when you talk, start talking about the the steeper it comes down, the less the face wants to close, and you see all the great. The great faders of our of the recent time, Lee, Dustin Johnson, David Duvall, Litsky, for that matter, mm-hmm. they all had shut faces, mm-hmm. and they'd come down slightly steep, and they didn't have to worry about the face opening because they had pre-built in the the de-lofted close. That, that's right, and they just turned left. Mm-hmm. Paul Paul Azinger, Paul, yeah, Paul Azinger, another great example. You know, John John Redmond, who who worked with uh, Azinger, uh, was uh, there at Royal Oak. In fact, he was the pro previous to me. Uh, worked uh, worked a whole lot with with Azinger. In fact, th- for through his whole career, and that's what John talked about. You know, he he said, you know, teachers don't like what they see, but it's very, very functional through the ball. I think you and I would both agree the golf swing is really 12 inches long. Yeah, for sure. It's six inches before you get to the ball and six inches after you go past the ball. The rest of it is just for power. That's right. Now, the better positions you can hit, the the more accurate you're going to be. 100%. And, of course, you use a track man, which, is, which I think is, is absolutely huge because I think most people, especially males maybe more than females, uh-huh. are – very very good visual learners and it allows them to step outside themselves and see what they're doing i can i can remember teaching you know well i've been teaching 52 years you know i had to do it all by eyesight 
which was fine. I knew what yeah. I was looking for. Yeah. But relating it to the student Whew, was, was almost impossible yeah. be- because they couldn't see these things. Now, with you know, I see you got three track men here in, in, in your teaching facility. I mean, good golly, what a what a great thing, you know. And if, if people don't come in to take lessons, you know, they're and, and they're just working outside without this stuff. I mean, they might as well be spitting into the wind. Yeah, I mean, in my opinion, TrackMan changed the game because they they brought that 3D collision, the impact collision, to life. Because we were always basically, even like a PGA book would always say, we're dealing with the path in the face. But now when you bring in the attack angle. The attack angle is very important. Very important. And that changed. That I think when soon as TrackMan went from an equipment company's tool to a teacher's tool, we went from having everybody looking exactly the same on the driving range on the PGA Tour till we started to see some variety again. And I think that we, as teachers, we kind of got stuck in this, you know, perfect model with a you know, kind of club out in front of your hands. Yeah, I, I call that uh, cook, cookie, cookie cutter swings. Cookie cutter swings. And at a certain point, we were watching tour players, especially at the beginning of Tiger's dominance, where they had, they had put it in such perfect positions that on the driving range or in practice rounds with no heat, they just flagged it straight as a string. When I think of people like that, I think of Trevor Immelman, Justin mm-hmm. Rose. Right. Man, they just, it was so perfect. It just hit it dead straight. But when they got nervous, they couldn't pick a side because they were just as likely to hit a slight tug as they were a slight push. And where Tiger killed him was Tiger knew where his ball was going. And although Tiger swing looked marvelous, it was certainly spectacular. Tiger had a different level of confidence in his head, whether that was certainly probably due to his work ethic, but also the gift that Tiger had. But to me, what separates, and I want to hear your take on this, what separates the elite from the almost elite is almost always in their belief in themselves, no matter how poorly they've played up to that particular point, versus other people are waiting for something to be confident in before they're confident. And to me, that is the intangible piece mm-hmm. is that you don't if, – if, if we relied on experience of winning to win, nobody would have ever won. So somebody had to visualize victory, visualize greatness and success before they could actually have success. Yeah, most, most, most definitely. You know, I, I think, the, I think the, 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 the really good players can visualize their shot – and then bring that visualization back and put it put it into their swing to create that shot that they want to create. Now, mind you, that takes a lot of practice. Yeah. You know, the problem with the game today is people are not willing to practice, you know, and they want instant gratification. Well, it's not going to happen. Not in this game. Not at all. It can't. You know, especially when you've got putting, you've got chipping, you've got sand bunker play, you've got all these things that are so important the golf swing, yeah, very important. But, you know, I know when I played, I watched guys, that they're going around the golf course and they're beating it all around. I'm thinking they're shooting 81, and we get in and I sign for a score of 69. Yeah. Well, you know, that's the good short game there. And then I've then I played with guys that, 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 that uh, just striped it. And Shoot the easiest 74 you've ever seen. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, I think the difference, Virgil, but between – uh, what I would call the really good player and the average player, 
the average player is 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 basing what they're going to do on the last shot that they hit. In other words, if they step on the first tee and they slice it, well, you know they're going to try to fix that slice, but that that ball continues to continues to slice all day. Mm-hmm. Okay, but they're they're working on what just happened. Good players, I think, have got terrible memories. Mm-hmm. Once that it doesn't matter how bad the shot's been. They're, the most important shot now is the next shot. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll, I'll never forget, I was playing uh, with, with Trevino one day down there at Royal Oak, and uh, we were on a five-par, and we both drove into about 74 yards, or didn't drive it, but hit our second shot's about 74 yards from the green, 74 and 75. Well, I hit it first and, and hit it in about six feet, and then Lee shanked it. Now, he shanked it an awful lot. No kidding. Yeah. For being such a great ball striker, he didn't. He he did hit some shanks. Of course, back then, you've got to remember the golf clubs were considerably different. The hosels in the clubs were very long and very heavy. Mm-hmm. If you notice the golf clubs of today, the hosels are very short, and they moved a lot of the weight to the toe to to help with all those tee shots. Well, back then we didn't have that. Yeah, we had the you know. So so you wanted to hit the ball back n- near the hosel. That's right. Okay, not off because if you hit it off toe, heck, it didn't, didn't go anywhere. Yeah, and but, the center of the face wasn't the center of the face. Exactly, it was, it was inside of that. But uh, he shanked it over by a, by a bush, and I turned to him. I, I, I said, Lee, I said, it looks like I got you here. He said, oh, no, Jim, that just creates a new opportunity. And he went over there and got that ball up and down, and I missed my putt. You know, that's, that's <laughs> you know, half the hole. Yeah. But but again, I I think the difference, you know, you, when you get to a certain category, as far as your ability is concerned, I think the game becomes so mental. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're aware of that. Mm-hmm. You know, you're a coach, and you know yourself that trying to get the kids that you're teaching to do things like that is very very difficult. Yeah, the ones that the ones that are successful with doing that become the better players. Would you agree? One hundred percent. So, you know, as far as the difference, like I say, I I I think it's mental with the with the better players. You know, you you talk about the the guys that putt good. Well, you know, or they miss a putt. These great putters that you just you know like Sandiger, mm-hmm. they miss a putt. Well, they forget it. It, that that's history. There's nothing you can nothing that you can't you cannot bring that back. Anything yeah. anything that you've done in the present time and backwards, there's nothing you can do about it. If you've made a mistake, all you can do is try to correct it. Mm-hmm. Very true. One of the things that I'll never forget. I remember I was teaching golf at Gaylord uh, Opryland Resort, and this gentleman who ran a power plant came in right around Christmas time, and he said, "I'm going to give you my employee manual," and it was the birth order book, and he had mentioned to me that. 90 some percent of the PGA tour is either only child or second child. And he says, I want you to read about the second child and tell me what you think. And so I started reading it and it was really fascinating. So like first born children, their role model is mom and dad. And by all accounts, the mom and dad are way more refined human beings than a child is. But the second child's role model is the first child, a way less refined person. So a second child, one is their role model makes a lot of mistakes. So they're you, they're quick to forget mistakes because they see that it happens all the time. And then first kids are the perfectionists because they're always trying to live up to the standard of mom and dad. 
So when you start looking at the problems in golf, perfectionism is a problem in everything, but in golf in particular, perfectionism or trying to be perfect at something is a cancer, not a bonus. Mm -hmm. So second children who are much more inclined to accept failure as part of life and they, they just pick up and move on with it. So like all the, the great players that I've taught were second Second kids. That's very and, interesting. And I thought that was so fascinating yeah. that he oh, brought this to that my attention. That is fascinating. Yeah. So it's, I'm thinking to myself, because Brant's a second child. His older brother, Hames, was a great player. Many people thought that he was going to be the one that plays on TV. And, you know, he won the uh, one of the big breaks on the Golf Channel and played with Brant and Disney and stuff like that. But Brant has this unique ability to, like, failure just rolls off him as if it didn't even happen. And it, it stuck with me like it was a badge. If I didn't perform well or hit a shot that was significantly under my talent level, I'd let it bother me for holes. And he mm-hmm. would he would have a hard time remembering what just happened. And I just think that of the gifts, there's some level of innate gift that everybody has. And it's the people who are that have grown up where mistakes are commonplace and just get over it and carry on are the benefactors if you end up being a good player at golf versus other professions need that perfectionism. Probably a brain surgeon would like to be right a lot of the times, or he wouldn't be a brain surgeon. Mm-hmm. Lawyers would like to be right a lot of the time. So it's the, the, the each particular scenario in life, every person's got their own script kind of pre-handed to them. Right. So I'm always looking for those things, but more than anything, is just trying to make sure that people understand that where they are and what their strengths are and what their weaknesses are. Cause most people, they don't want to know about their weaknesses and they don't realize that their strengths are strengths and can be a weakness. And it, to the, the game is like I said, like you said too, once you get to a certain point, it's almost all mental in how you access the physical. That's the most yeah, important that's part. That, that's, I agree with you 100%. It's not that it's mental, mental, it's the fact that your state of mind allows you to access all that you know and not interfere with it on the way. And that is what we end up spending our time coaching. Right. How can I get you out of your own way because you already know how to do this? And I think that that may be where Mo Norman had a real significant advantage is that he didn't have the the, the gift of remembering the thousands of things that he's done wrong. He just hit hit another one, hit another one. And he probably was gifted with a level of feel and understanding of how he could see the golf swing in his mind that made him so amazing. But at the end of the day, that's what we're all trying to figure out is what it takes to be the best version of ourselves. Well, I think you're 100% right. You know, Mo has had, you know, while, while he was alive, you know, Everybody telling him what a great ball striker he was, and he actually at some at some point in his life determined that he was the best ball striker in his own mind, hmm. and he thoroughly enjoyed pulling each shot. And every time he hit a shot, this one's going to be better. Watch this, watch this, and it, it, it same same ball flight every time. Mm-hmm. You know, seven iron had about a, a three or four yard draw to it on on, on his full swing. The height of the shot, you know, when I hit a seven iron, I might hit one 90 feet, I might hit one 60 feet, 
they end up going may- maybe the same distance. Mm-hmm. But th- the, the height control was never really there. He had perfect height, height control. Every, every one of those shots launched through the same window. And it didn't matter, Virgil, if it was on concrete or if it was on a fluffy lie. Hmm. His, his control through the shot with his face angle with the, you know, wherever he, you know, if he, it, and I, I don't know exactly if he was trying to get his hands three inches in front of the ball, two inches behind the ball, or, or one inch, or, you know, right, right straight 90 degree angle to his, to his body. Because you know yourself, the further forward your hands go, you're kind of de-lofting the club just a little bit. Sure. But uh, he managed to, to make that ball flight just be all, almost exactly the same every time. It was, it was just uncanny. Yeah, I've found that, you know, we're talking about impact angles. And I've gotten into some interesting arguments, and I'm not one to try to prove somebody wrong. I just, like, I'm always asking questions, right? So if you have the, the left wrist or the lead wrist, for just to make it ubiquitous for everybody, mm-hmm. the lead wrist is slightly flexed or bowed, and the lead knuckles are down and the right wrist is bent back, that creates an angle that has the grip ahead of the club head leaning forward. Mm-hmm. Now, what we do know is that we can't have that too far forward compared to the target line or you're going to hit blocks and hooks. Correct. Right. Yeah. So the more the hands are forward and you have that lag stored, the more you also have to open up and rotate open. Swing, and swing a little left. Le- swing a little left. And what I've found is that the through the numbers on TrackMan, as I see it, and the gears, the 3D motion capture system, is that the elite ball strikers have the most wrist angle, that, that left wrist flex and the right wrist, the trail lit wrist bent back. Con- concave. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, but what they do is that they're able to take that angle and they rotate it left so that the shaft from the face-on view looks pretty straight up and down. But compared to the angles of their body rotation, there's a ton of lag. Mm-hmm. So, and, and this is what makes it, that's three-dimensional, right? So, from the two-dimensional view of a straight-on line, it looks like the shaft's barely leaning forward. But if you spin and look at it from the top, you can see that the shoulders are open 35 degrees, their hips are open 45 degrees, and that club is really trailing the hands. Mm-hmm. It's just that because the body is so opened up compared to the target line, that lag is actually dead shot right at the target line. Right. And... Because the game has started from a setup position where the shoulders and hips are generally square to the target, most people who pick up this silly game think that if you start square and we're trying to hit it square so that it goes straight, that we probably need to come back to the ball square. That's probably one of the four biggest misconceptions that I hear from people. Is that I, they, I would agree 100% with you. That they feel like, well, I have to come back with my hips and my shoulders square to impact, right? I'm like, nope. 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 What do you mean? Why would I want to have my body so far left at impact? It's because you're not hitting it with your body. You're hitting it with that club head. And you're trying to create as much speed and angular force and momentum as you possibly can. And those things don't line up real good if your hips and your shoulders are square at the target line. Mm -hmm. And so to get people to understand the 3D component of the golf swing, that's where the track man really kicked in with the attack angle, is that if you had all that lag... And you stayed square, your path would be nine to the right, and you'd either hit it nine degrees to the right, or you'd have this big slinging draw that the pitching wedge wouldn't quite get back to the target line, but that four iron would be 50 feet left of the flag. Mm-hmm. 
And people didn't understand that. And for a long time, I didn't understand it because I was, I had all this leg. I've always had a lot of power, but I, for the longest time, could never be convinced that my shoulders didn't need to be square when I hit the golf ball. Right. And un- unfortunately, that just led me to being an outrageously incredible hooker of the golf ball. I was hooking. I had the German ball, the hook and blocking. I could hook yeah. it or I could block it, but I couldn't hit it stinking straight. Well, you straight. know, Mo, Mo, Mo had, uh, hit balls pretty much like that, although Mo's thinking was he wanted to keep the club face on the target line as long as possible, even though he was even though he was turning. So it created a bit of disconnect on the follow through between his his arms and his body because his body was turning left mm-hmm. a little bit, but he's trying to hold the hold the club on the line. Hmm. And he was uh, able to do that. Yeah, yeah. It was. So you, you don't you don't I, really I, see that. You yeah, don't really see that anymore. But you see, you can. How, how, how can you teach that? Yeah, that's a that's a very innate and unique feel and fun. Yeah, you, wow. you know it's it uh, you know like like I do use a lot of the information and 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 try to teach some of the things that that the Mo did that he related to me. Mm-hmm. But that's one thing that I don't really try to try to work with because uh, first of all I I don't I think it's too hard to do. Mm-hmm. You know, it's more. You know, if, if you keep a connection with your with your arms, your your club is going to move a little bit left. It's it's got to. Yeah. But um, that that was I always found that very very interesting that he he tried to hold his club on the target line as from impact <laughs> through about about almost about twelve inches. He would he would talk about. Wow. You know, but um, you know, I you, you, you talk you talk about. Uh, talk about that golf swing it's um you know it's, it's pretty easy really it's athletic yeah but the minute you put that ball on the ground everything changes you got that right everybody you know they see that ball on the ground so they're vertical outside in you know and and and, and i have people come to me and and of course you know what the guys are doing on tv people don't take into consideration you know they're driving the ball so far that they're hitting a lot of wedges and nine irons to the green. Uh, well, you know yourself, as a player, mm-hmm. you never challenge a right side pin placement. Correct. You're aiming the ball left of the hole, maybe center of the green, and if you happen to cut it a little bit, it's getting closer. To the, hole. the more you cut it, the closer it's getting to the hole, mm-hmm. and then you never short side yourself where you've got no green to work with with a wedge. And, and they see these guys, the, the tour players, get it to the top, and, and, and then they actually make a little move over the top to create that cut, uh-huh. that steep swing. Yep. So, you know, first thing you know, Joe comes to me, and that's what he's trying to do. But he doesn't realize that they're working with wedges, and, and, and that's what they want to do. When they actually make their move, that's not happening. Yeah. You know, the club, everything's actually getting a little bit lower. Yeah. So, you know, we, we, we combat – all sorts of stuff as, as as teachers. Yeah, and we're always. And it's funny because we. It's hard for us to guarantee that the people that are coming to get a golf lesson are going to actually practice. Obviously, there are some, but they, when they do practice, so let's just say if a hundred people come and get a golf lesson, sixty percent of them are actually going to practice what they did, and ten percent of that sixty are going to do it effectively. The other fifty, the other fifty. I mean, or I guess the other ninety percent of that sixty are just actually going back out and exercising the muscles just as they did prior to the lesson with you. Exactly. With your information in mind, but they're not doing anything about it while practicing. 
And really, that's the, one of the bigger dilemmas in golf is not so much our information or the, the player's desire to get better. It's the fact that they have to change every single thing that they do to make that change. And it starts with how they practice, how they walk into the ball, how that much time they take getting set up correctly. Because at the end of the day, if you've played golf long enough to have a swing, at the end of the day, the only thing that you're dealing with is the ability to understand that it's your setup that makes your golf swing leave, mm-hmm. not your golf swing leaving. Your golf swing doesn't leave. What ends up happening is that you've altered your setup, got too far away, too bent over, aimed too far right or too far left, ball gets too far back, too far forward. Something has changed, and your brain has athletically having to make an adjustment, and it can only do it for a little bit of time until all of a sudden it's sideways. When, you, when, you're, when you're working with somebody, let's say you got somebody coming to you, once a week or once every two weeks, can you tell if they have practiced what you wanted them to practice for that period of time? 100%. Or, or uh, I mean, can you, can you tell, well, well this, this guy or this girl has practiced because of where they're at now or if they haven't practiced? Yes, for sure. No, no doubt about it, is No there? doubt about it. How many, how, how many people would you say really taken, you know, if you, if you had ten people, how, how many people do you think are, are really, really working hard to do what you've asked them to do? Well, I'm fortunate because I, most of my clients are the better player. So that's, that makes my percentage likely higher than everybody else's. I'm going to say between 40 and 50%. Now, keep in mind, I also I teach a lot of you know men between the ages of 35 and 55. they got a job, and they're working really hard, and they have, they've been playing golf for a really long time. So they... They don't get a chance to practice all the time. So maybe two out of six lessons, they come in and they've actually worked on it. And the other four out of six, they've been thinking about it. They may have, you know, made a couple of motions while, while thinking it. But they've been in the, in the boardroom or they've been traveling, doing business, and they haven't. But when it comes to the kids and the junior golfers, that's a better testament to understand who's practicing what because that's their goal. Yeah, and life doesn't get in doesn't get in their way that's right they don't have that job and, and i would else. probably say it's about 40 percent because i think all of them practice i just think that only 40 percent of them are willing to take the time to do the things that set up that allow them to make the change or the pre-shot routine that allows them to make the change because most people are raking swatters they plop down their bucket of balls and they have it they have their intentions for about five balls until that first bad one comes, and then the next bad one comes, and now they, the just the anxiety that golf brings, they stop working on anything, and they just start trying to yeah. react to the last shot they hit. You know, I, have a, I find that interesting that you that you that you you talk about the pre-shot. You know that that pre-shot, you know, preparation's ninety-nine percent of the finished product. Yeah. You know, and the, and the, that preparation, you know, the the, uh, the mannerisms and everything that are done before the shot are, are so important. You know, and you can watch a tour, you can pick one tour player out that's on TV, and and watch watch their routine, shot after shot after shot. And it's the same thing. They they almost pull the trigger from the time they've set up at exactly the second every time. Every time you can put a watch on it. Mm-hmm. And I think that our students sometimes get out there and, uh, you know, want quality. I mean, quantity more than quality. Yeah. And they don't take the time to go through the 
through the pre-shot. Yeah. You know, I, I just find that very interesting that you bring that up because I'm I'm a real stickler about that. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because we have to we have to do this dance as a coach between not losing our client by making them by forcing the round peg into a square hole, but we also have to constantly remind them that they're not going to become the the square peg to get in that square hole if they don't do what we're you're asking them to do. Like, why do you think that didn't work? Uh, I don't know. I made a bad swing. I said, no, you for, your ball position was too far back again. You were aimed to the right, and you didn't. You don't have an alignment stick down. You're just raking and swatting. Mm-hmm. And it's a habit that you have. So what happens to you is that you're only invested in the change until you hit a couple of bad shots, and then the fear of hitting bad shots is greater than the desire to make the change. The anxiety. Yeah. The anxiety. Once that anxiety creeps in, you know, it, it, everything changes. 100%. Everything changes. You, go, go, you start to revert back to what you, what you were doing before, and uh, you go back to Virgil, and Virgil's got to take and turn around and go over the same thing that he did in last lesson, and uh, same thing happens the third lesson. You know, it, it's hard. It's hard to hard to get this across that, that they, they need to go out and practice with a purpose. Yeah. Not just hit balls, but practice with a purpose. Every every shot leads to the next shot. You know, and and the hardest thing about this game, I think, is the anxiety factor. One hundred percent. You got to, if you've got anxiety, you've got to, you know your backswing gets shorter, your hands get faster. You know, you've 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 got to relax to 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 play this game. Yeah, I've always found it like I think that if the average person picks up a basketball and shoots it at the rim, and they hit the rim and it doesn't go in, and then they go home in that night and watch a basketball game and they see that happen plenty. You know, mm-hmm. but you don't ever see people hit on TV ridiculously terrible golf shots that the beginning golfer hits. So they can't relate. That doesn't look relatable as it does to miss like a just a, a 12-foot basketball shot versus completely ground-topping, heel-shank-top the driver that goes 18 yards dead left and hits him in the left foot. You don't see a tour player do that. So the embarrassment level and the lack of athleticism that it then portrays to the to the layperson intimidates the heck out of them in the struggle to pick up the game because golf has a steep learning curve at the very beginning it's humbling but once you get it then it's this pretty plateau with some ebbs and flows that subtly work their way up right yeah so you become in in the kind of player that you're destined to become but getting people through that that learning curve of being able to drive the golf ball in play nicely and to be able to hit a ball off the grass without duffing it or only sculling it. Those are the two big hurdles. I still think driver is more important than hitting off the turf to most people. But the when you we break people through, it's when they can put a ball, the ball is in the fairway, and they can hit the ball, then the turf, and they hear that that sound of compression. That's when we've we've moved them into somewhat arrived. Yeah, you've you've somewhat arrived. Yeah, it's it's um it, it's you know our our whole society, as you know, has become instant gratification. I know I do that all the time in my life. Heck, if I pull into a fast food place, I'll just use Burger King as an example, and there's ten cars in the line, and I look across the street, and Taco Bell's got two cars. Well, 
I pull out and I go over where the two cars are, but for that instant gratification. I don't, yeah. And 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 I think when people start this game, that they want that instant gratification, and you and I both know that is not going to happen. Let me ask you this: Would you rather have a a kid come to you uh, who immediately becomes a world beater, so to speak, in in his uh, age group or, mm-hmm. or whatever uh, in tournaments, or would you rather have one that comes to you and struggles and continually gets a little bit better and a little bit better? Have you, have you ever really Histori- thought about that? Historically speaking, I would want somebody that hasn't peaked so early. Uh, I think that and as me, a, and as, me too. I think as a twelve or thirteen year old, who let's say you developed earlier than everybody else, so you're thirteen years old and you're six foot one, and everybody else you're playing is four foot nine and ninety eight pounds, and you know you hit their your six iron wrong and hit their driver, you get this false sense of security that you're a world beater. And I try to get, and I'm very fortunate to work with a lot of very talented players, and I am always trying to remind them that people are catching up to you every day and you're working your butt off. But your gifts that gave you this confidence and this desire to be awesome occurred in which you were the most physically developed in your age group at the time. But people are catching you every day and they have one advantage that you don't have, which is they've been living their life since they were 12 to beat you because you've been beating them so badly. When you're on the top of the mountain, what it takes to stay on top is not what it takes to get on top. And when you're the king of the mountain at age 13, your brain's not fully developed to understand the struggle that's about to occur. But when you're 13 and you're at the bottom of the mountain, it's a struggle, but you're into it because yeah. you're going to get – gonna... I, I, would, I would much rather have, 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 have the individual that, that starts out getting their brains beat out and eventually – Get to that top where there's where they're beating that that early good good uh, guy that had the, the ability right off the bat, and I've found that you know those world beaters early once the other kids catch up don't know how to deal with it. That's right, they don't because they at the time at their de- the development of their brain they didn't have to deal with that adversity. So if when they win forty and fifty and sixty times in this window of time, they get the it's either win or I suck. Exactly. Yeah. And as soon as they go through a little bit of stretch where they don't win because people have caught them, they're not most are not willing. And I mean, most as in like 95% or higher aren't willing to dig in. They're quick to dismiss it as I'm, I'm, I'm so glad to hear you say that, you know, I, I thought maybe I was the only guy out there that felt that way, but yeah, cause I, I will tell you that I teach a couple of world beaters and I got a couple that have run on some difficult times, and they have closed up shop. And I have some that are still continue to win, but not at the clip that they did when they were, you know, 12 or 13. But they are, they've listened. Like, hey, man, these, the thing that you have that they don't have is all these championships. And, man, they want to beat you so bad. Mm-hmm. And it's not easy for you to get fired up about somebody you've whipped 50 and 60 times. But it is really easy to get up to be playing somebody that's beat you 50 or 60 times. Oh, yeah. You, you, you get up and you can't you, wait. Man. Yeah, you can't wait to do and, it. And once they get you, 
How do you handle that? And it's like coaching them to understand they're coming. And if and I try to help them remember, Tiger Woods has won like 20% of his events. And yes, in his prime, it was close to 44%. But that means the greatest golfer that's ever walked the face of the earth has won one in five. And you're not Tiger Woods. By no stretch of the imagination are you Tiger Woods. You know, you, you speak you, you speak of Tiger Woods, and and I don't know if this tr- tale is true or not, but uh, as the story goes, he he just won the Masters, and he was uh, the next morning, he was out on the practice tee, at sunup, hitting balls, and as the story goes, a reporter came by and said, Tiger, why in the world? Are you out here hitting balls? The sun hasn't even really come up, and you're you're hitting balls. Why are, why are you doing that? You're the number one player in the world. You're the best player in the world. Why would you subject yourself to that to that work? And as t- as the story goes, Tiger said, "You know, there are tens of thousands of kids out there that want what I've got, and I'm not about to let them have it." Mm-hmm. You know that. And I don't know if that story is true or not. Well, it holds but, true to uh, – I mean, I don't remember hearing that story, but what I do know is that it holds true to everything that his dad said, everything that he has said, and his work ethic for that 12-year window where he just dominated, which is kind of unprecedented oh, to yeah. dominate for that long, would let you know that he outworked everybody with more talent than everybody. So for every Tiger Woods and Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant and – Raf Raf and Adal or Roger Federer or you know whoever you want to talk about that was a complete dominator for an extended period of time. There are thousands of people with equal talent and not the work ethic. No, you know I I, I tell this I'll, I'll tell this story. You don't mind me telling no, stories, do you? Absolutely. <laughs> but uh, you know I, I I was playing in the uh, Florida PGA Championship at Bay Hill and. Uh, I had a shotgun tournament at my club at Royal Oak, which was about 40 minutes away. I asked the tournament committee if I could have this first starting time of the day, and it was like right at right at sunup. So I got there, and uh, Bay Hill's got a double-ended driving range, okay. And a lot of the tour players like to use the the end at the other side where they're you know where they're not being bothered by people. But anyway. I noticed there was a guy dressed all in white, white white pants and a white shirt, uh, down there hitting balls. Well, I went out and played, finished, and looked down on the driving range, and this guy is still hitting balls. I didn't think too much of it at that point, but um, I went I went back to, to, to Royal Oak, got the tournament off, and I'd played pretty good uh, that day. In, in fact, uh, I played really good. So I said, I'm going to go back, and I'm going uh, to practice my putting back at Bay Hill. Drove back to Bay Hill, got out on the putting green. Palmer and uh, his wife came out, and we talked a little bit. But I looked down on the end of the driving range, and this guy's still hitting balls, Virgil. Okay, mm-hmm. now that's, this is like eight hours later. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then the sun goes down, and I look down there, and this guy's still hitting balls. So I went into the pro shop, and I asked Dick Titty, who was the, the golf professional there. I said, Dick, just who the heck is this guy down here on the end of the driving range? He, I know for a fact that he's hit balls from sun up when the sun's going down right now. He said, Jim, 
That's Greg Norman. That's why he's the number one player in the world. Oh, wow. He does that six days a week. <laughs> Amazing, isn't it? Yeah, and Butch Harmon taught Greg Norman and Tiger. And he said, I didn't think that I would run into anybody that could outwork Greg Norman until I met Tiger Woods. Yeah. And that's a, that's an interesting thing. Is like the level of hunger. Because at the end of the day, it's not who's the best. It's who's the hungriest. Mm-hmm. That level of hunger to stay that hungry when you don't need it anymore that person's not quite wired right, <laughs> right? And it, it creates an imbalance. So when we start looking at the greatest of all time, they also show a level of social imbalance. And Tiger definitely demonstrated that, and so did Michael Jordan has definitely demonstrated a lack of it. But at the end of the day, what we cheer on as unbelievable greatness, we just have to take it for what it is. We celebrate this particular athlete because they're outstandingly – brilliant in both talent and work ethic but to have that kind of sacrifice in their life they're sacrificing something else oh yeah they've got to be and at the end of the day we, there's only we should be celebrating for what they should be celebrated for not for every single thing in their life yeah you had the opportunity you mentioned it i would like to hear some stories about arnold palmer you spent some time obviously down in florida and, and to be around the king who was such an iconic figure talk to us about what it was like uh, with, with Arnold Palmer. Oh, I was, uh, be honest with you, I was only, I was only with he and, what, I'm trying Winnie. to think of, Winnie. Yeah. They had their dog out there uh, on, on, on the, uh, on, running around the putting green. And I, I got to talk to him. I only talked to him for about 10 minutes. Uh-huh. But I tell you what, I was just in, just in awe how, how nice he was to me. Mm-hmm. He didn't know me from Adam. He had and that he, way about him, man. He could just make you feel like you guys have been best friends forever. Oh, yeah. When he, when he went away, I, you know, I, I just, I said, oh man, I've, I've I've just had the opportunity that that so many people don't have, and it, mm. it was it was just incredible. Yeah, Lee Trevino, another person that's generally misunderstood. Uh, back in the beginning of his Champions Tour heyday, he he was much more on TV. Golf was starting to become more on TV. The Skins game, and it looked like he was a jovial, fun-loving, laughable, affable guy. But deep down inside, not many people really liked him, and he was a very unique person, to say the least. What was your time with Lee Trevino like? Well, uh, I, I would say that uh, it it was uh, it, it was it was very good. You know, Lee uh, Lee had the uncanny ability, Virgil, to be uh, laughing and carrying on, and the minute that quote pre-shot routine went in. His personality completely changed. You know, it, it was all all business. Mm-hmm. Once he'd hit that shot, it didn't matter. He'd was, start talking again. No. You know, uh, Lee won the uh, the Varden Trophy in, I want to say it was uh, maybe 81, 82. And he was playing at the uh, Players, Players' Championship. It was back far enough where it wasn't at uh, the TPC. It was at uh, Sawgrass, mm-hmm. the original Sawgrass. Yeah. And uh, we, uh, we were going to present him with the Varden Trophy there at Royal Oak in Titusville. So all the PGA officials all, all came in, and uh, they, we flew a helicopter to Jacksonville picked him up and, 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 and brought him back. And uh, he, he was, you know, of course, he just won the Varden Trophy. In fact, he won the Players' Championship that year. Mm-hmm. And he was, uh, he, he was just a mess. He, he was so much, so much fun to be around, you know, mm-hmm. 
but but like I say, when he went to hit a golf shot, and, and it was it was it was all business. Hmm. You know, uh, he came down several years before the uh, British Open. He'd come down and he was building a golf course there uh, just down the street. But he had me pull in a cart with a big bushel basket of balls in it in the back and uh he would go he would come in first thing in the morning unlock the cart barn get the cart out and go to the driving range at sun up and uh you know i asked him i said well, why do you do that he said well when i practice i very very rarely hit a good shot because i'm working on some mechanics of my swing hmm. I very rarely hit a good shot he said many people find out that lee trevino's on the driving range there's hundreds if not thousands of people pulling off the road watching coming to watch me hit balls and they expect to see as good a, as close to perfection as as i can create mm-hmm. so I, I try to do my practicing all by myself where where i don't have any peer pressure at all because again i very very rarely hit a good shot and i, I always found that kind of fascinating interesting another thing that I, I wanted to get your take on as we kind of shift where you are today Two unforeseen circumstances have benefited where you currently are. One of them is is this unique buzz going around nine-hole golf courses and how it makes it accessible. They don't have to give the five-hour time commitment. You can get the nine holes in. And, and with Sweetens Cove and Sewanee and the River Club, it's interesting. Tennessee has three of the greatest night. Now, obviously, you can play from different tee boxes at your facility, and so does at Swanee as well. But it's a nine-hole layout that you play from different tee boxes. We have three of the top nine-hole courses in the country, all within about two hours of each other. And how, for the longest time, we thought that Tiger Woods was going to be the person that brought so much to the game. Little did we know that it was going to be a pandemic. So between COVID... And the nine-hole buzz. When I was working at the River Club, it was at the very beginning of the success that it is now instantly, infinitely, more gigantic. Yeah, it's crazy now. It's crazy. Talk to us about in the the process of deciding on a nine-hole facility and a great practice facility and then never imagining the craziness that occurred at the beginning of the pandemic and how golf then became deemed essential and then boom golf exploded at a level that we've never seen before yeah we we're 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 so busy right now it's it's, it's incredible and I'm, I'm i thank god for that but uh you know when we originally uh set up the uh facility there we were actually just going to build a build a driving range but under the building codes there in in uh, clarksville a driving range was uh, con- considered commercial, and the people across the street had never allowed any type of commercial uh, buildings put on that property that we're on right now. Well, during the discussions with the city, we found out that a golf course was zoned residential. So we decided, okay, well, let's build a golf course and then attach a state-of-the-art 47 acres. You've been there. Yeah, absolutely. It's huge. Yeah. Uh, uh, driving range to it, and, of course, then we can build a clubhouse and and everything else. Well, we didn't have enough land to, to build 18. Uh, so we actually contacted Billy Fuller, uh, an architect out of uh, Atlanta, 
and he had uh, been very familiar with a nine-hole course that was in Atlanta. I cannot think of the name of it right off the top of my head, but again, it's very successful. Mm-hmm. Uh, Billy came up and he said, "Look," he said, "Let's do this. Let's build an 18-hole golf course, so to speak, on nine holes of property." So I said, "Oh, interesting." So Billy created a, a situation where we've got uh, six sets of tees, and we've actually got 13 greens. And what we'll do is we'll have the, pl- the players play from one set of tees to a red flag and put a red flag in every green. So they play to the red flags on the first loop, and then we put a set of white flags and holes out there for the second loop, so so they take and they play to to all the white flags on the second loop. Well, you know that way they can play eighteen holes if they want, mm-hmm. and never play from the same tee, or play to the same green. And the golf course is like seventy four hundred yards yeah. from the back. Mm-hmm. You know if you want to play it from the back, but uh, it has it has really turned out to be a, a very good business situation for us because you know we've we, we've got an eighteen hole golf course so to speak on nine holes worth of property. But by the same token, if people just want to play nine holes, it, it's great. And I don't, I'm sure you remember, the USGA kind of changed their, their philosophy on the game. They came out with, uh, and it was about 10 years ago, yeah. the slogan, nine is fine, mm-hmm. because people didn't have enough time. They felt part of the enemy of golf was the time that it took to play. Yeah. That people just couldn't take that much time out of their day. Mm-hmm. So they started this slogan, nine is fine. And boy, that's helped us out greatly, For too, sure. Virgil. For yeah. sure. You know, how, how what was it like uh, at the beginning of the pandemic when they shut everything down? That had to be absolutely unnerving to no end. But then, like, that was about two weeks of like fear, and then boom, golf was was deemed good. And then from that point on, you'd be probably drinking out of a fire hose. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, they they shut down our restaurant for for a couple of weeks while we were going through all all, all this stuff, but they never. We had to run the golf course from outside. We couldn't run it from in, inside. We had to have the cash registers and, and the computers outside mm-hmm. the building. But uh, man, when that when that pandemic hit, I mean, we just it was it was like putting the accelerator to the floor. It, I mean, people just started to come out of the woodwork. Lessons. Oh my goodness, people wanting to learn to play the game. Yeah. People coming back who had had gotten away from the game for one reason or another yeah. you know now hey we can we can we can play golf and i'm sure that you've experienced it with your with your lesson numbers yeah for sure you it's, know it, it, it's good yeah 2020 was the most bizarre year for me i taught people that i hadn't taught in 15 years coming you know getting back into the game i had said man there was so many people that i hadn't taught forever that you know wanted to get back in because it's the only thing they could do I got to get out. I got to get out and do something, and I got to get back into the game. I thought that was really interesting, how that went down. I always find it fascinating because essentially three of the top nine hole courses are in Tennessee, and they're all slightly different. Sewanee has two different tee boxes played to the same flag. Sweetens Cove has one set of tee boxes played to two flags, and you have two separate tee boxes for two separate flags. Yeah. So you get the you get the wide range of experience, but I think that. Uh, the thing that I enjoyed about the River Club so much is that it was easily playable for the beginner, but just as much as it was enjoyable for the beginner to feel like they could play the game and not get their head kicked in, it was still challenging enough that a good player couldn't just go out and destroy it 
No, no, there's not, there's not a tree on it. That's right. You know, it, it, there's not a tree on the golf course, but the uh, retention areas and, and all the grass is high. You know, it, you could think of it as, as hazard. So, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it's not wide open, but it does allow that that, that beginner or that, that player that's not real good that's got that heavy slice. They can start it way out left and, and, yep. and get it in the fairway because, like I say, there's, there's, there's no trees. Yeah. Simpson Clarksville also has a great reputation for for producing great golfers, and I've been fortunate enough to work with. I worked with Mason uh, at the very end of his of his career in life. I mean, Mm -hmm. he was pretty much done playing, but I spent a lot of time with him. He was so spectacular. And then you have the the Ryan Fishers and the Brandon brothers Mm -hmm. and and Doc Brandon too. And you know, at a certain point that evolved, and now you got a really great player right now in Patton Samuels and McKinley Cunningham. And they were all out there when I was out there. And Clarksville has this great reputation. And I would almost chalk it up to the military mindset of hard work has produced some really great players because that's the kind of atmosphere that's created in that town there's no fluff there's no entitlement it's we work hard here Mm -hmm. and i just like when you think about you've been in clarksville for a very long time you know whether at clarksville country club and then going to the river club what do you think that separates or that is something that to cheer on about the players of clarksville and how well they've played around the country well you know i i think that uh you know, it, it all star- starts with uh, with junior golf. Quite honestly, Virgil, yeah. uh, we we've got a uh, what we call the Clarksville Junior Tour up there. We we let kids start at uh, at six years of age, and uh, we move, maybe move them up a hundred yards from the from the green. And as they get older, we move, move make the golf course a little bit longer. But we've been doing this uh, ever since I was I actually started it. There at the uh, at the country club, and the, the country club participates. Uh, the the uh, golf course, the Cole Park, which is on the base, and also Swan Lake mm-hmm. and ourselves. So we, we give the kids four four playing venues to play, and then we give them uh, three clinics over the year. In, in other words, we just try to try to get them to bite a little bit into the apple, and. Uh, Consequently, we've we've got a, a, a huge number of juniors at play, mm-hmm. and uh, you know some of them stick with it. You know, I, I think this has become the age of specialization. Yeah. Uh, you know, you can you can't play golf and football. You can't play golf and play basketball. You know, uh, you can't play basketball and, and and play golf type of thing. I, I think it's become a, an age of specialization. Yeah. So you know the the kids need to. Uh, need to pick up on one thing when they reach a certain age and and hang in there and do that and do it to 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 the best of their ability and and make sacrifices yeah make sacrifices in their life you know uh maybe not go out on the weekends because you're going to get up and you're going to go to the golf course and you're going to you're going to practice tomorrow you're going to play mm-hmm. you know in uh, without that specialization I don't think they really succeed to to the level that they want to succeed. Certainly not to to uh, uh, what we would call uh, college. You know, I, I, I'm, you're familiar with this one girl that I've taught, Autumn, Sp- Autumn Spencer. Yeah, she, she's at the golf course every day. It doesn't matter if it's snowing. She's at the golf course. She ended up with a with a full ride to Austin P. Oh, fantastic! You know, uh, kids like that. You know, and, and you've had you've had 
many, many kids that have gone to Division One. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's it's, it's self fulfilling. So much. But so. the but the hardest thing I I find is keeping them motivated, and 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 have them realize that hey, you know, you're going to have to sacrifice a couple of things if you want to if you want to get to that level. You know, yeah. it's. Uh, um, and again, you, you know, it's it's a case where the kids that practice with a purpose, with good uh, leadership, good a good teacher like yourself, you got to have that. Yeah, you got to have that. If you don't have that, you 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 you're you're somewhat lost as far as I'm For concerned. Sure. You know, and 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 those students have have got to create a uh, a repertoire with you as you do with them because you're a team yeah you're a team and you're not going to get to that level unless you've got somebody like yourself here you know these these, these kids that are coming here now i guarantee you're going to make a hell of a player out out of many of them some of them won't but it's only because they don't want it yeah you're going to do everything you can to make them successful correct and you know how to do that Yep, and it's it's fascinating to uh, to be around a group of talented, talented players, and how the cream will always rise to the top, and then that cream will pull some along and knock others down. It's very mm-hmm. fascinating to watch how how that how an alpha dog, guy or girl, so to speak, can really alter the the landscape, especially if somebody takes off. You know, somebody that was number three last year becomes number one and noticeably number one. It's a shocking, shocking set mm-hmm. of circumstances and how it can change the dynamics. And it's fun to be around talent. And it's fun to be around people that have this dream. A lot of kids here have this dream of playing on TV. They work really hard at being the best they can be. But like you said, at a certain point, what are they willing to give up? to go the extra mile that separates the, the cream from the crop, mm-hmm. so to speak. And that's the that's the most important part for me is to watch who really wants it, who's hungry, and who is satisfied already. I'm satisfied with where my game is. I'm in good shape. And those people are really great players, and they they may or may not get that Division One scholarship, but they like where they are. And then there are some people that are just – they have that right antidote, right dose of, I'm, I know I played really good yesterday, and I know I won by three, but I'm not satisfied yet. I want more. Right. And yeah. there aren't many people that are wired like that. Mm-hmm. But to see that, that's a really fun thing, especially in kids today, which is, I think that's being stripped from them a little bit. Because that highlight reel on that phone makes them think that if they're not awesome every single time that they're a failure. And it's a it's a mirage mm-hmm. for these kids, really. Yeah, you know it's just, you know we quite honestly we've got a very very difficult job. We've got to be psychologists uh, and 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 also t- t- teach the golf swing. Uh, it's a it's a very difficult job, uh, very tiring. I, I I know when you come in in the morning, you get all set to go, and by the end of the day, you're completely mentally mentally and maybe sometimes physically drained. Because you're pouring in to these people that that want to play the game, you're, you're trying to you're trying to make them better. Yeah. Uh, there are some professionals in this business that will just go to the lesson tee and go through the motions. 
I know you don't do that. I've watched you. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I, I look up to you, and uh, I wish you all sorts of success. Well, I'm, I'm very honored to, to know you, and then you saved me from a really difficult time in, in, my, uh, in my professional life. Uh, when you get blindsided on a job, which I also know that you've experienced, it's not easy to give your very best at all times and walk in one day and find out that it's over. Mm-hmm. It's a very hard day to experience that. And it was another thing to have nowhere to go for such a, a extended period of time. I was really biz- bizarrely humbled by the fact that I wasn't welcome to teach anywhere. So when I ended up at your place, I remember um, Ryan Fisher, uh, who's, who works for Bushnell in the tour division. He was from Clarksville, who I taught. And he's like, you know what you ought to do? You ought to go up and check out Jim at his new place at the River Club. And at that point, I'd never even heard of that. I actually didn't even know that you were in Clarksville <laughs> Country Club. So I went up there and checked it out, and I was like, man, this place is spectacular. And it's, it's still the best driving range practice facility to be able to take your game to the next level that I've been working at. So you got, you did a great job in the design and everything that you've done at that facility. So it's, it's remarkable. And then obviously it just took time to grow it and a little bit of help from, a, from a pandemic and properly strategized and put together. It's worked out really well for you, sir. Yes. Yes. Very well. Well, t- tell me a little bit about as we, as we head into the final part of the, of the podcast, I'd be remiss to think, we've talked about a lot of great things that have happened in your life and how you've gotten to be where you are today, but I'd be remiss to think that you didn't have to struggle through something that you weren't quite sure you were going to be able to make it. But when you got to the other side, it steeled your resolve to know that you could make it through anything. What's that one thing that happened in your life that you persevered through that really set the table for your success? Well, you know, obviously there's there's been a whole lot of things, you know. Uh, you talk about... Uh, you know, you're at a, you're at you're at a place, and you give it everything you got, and then all of a sudden one day it's it's done because somebody else wants what you got. Uh, being 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 fired, and and then having to get up and and restart. You know, I think that's been been very very good for me because I've 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 always had that drive to to be to be successful. But probably the the, the most. Uh, thing that light comes comes to mind i was a professional surfer through uh grade uh, middle school and high school uh in Cocoa beach florida hmm. uh, i rode for hobie surfboards and surfboards hawaii and went through went through high school in fact high school i only had to go to class two days a week uh, or not two days a week two classes a day hmm. was all i had to take and of course that was back in the 60s when uh, they had the farm, the farm thing. If you were a farm guy, you didn't have to go to school for the normal six or seven hours. You can you could get out after two hours and go go to work at your at your farm. Oh wow! But anyway, I, I had that uh, uh, I guess given to me, so to speak. But uh, the year that uh, the team was going to go to the Puerto Rico to represent the United States in the World Championship. Um, I went to uh, a couple of my buddies' apartment and walked in and found them both dead. Um, OD'd. Wow. You know, back then, drugs were uh, drugs, drugs and women. That was that was what drove 
drove us back then, mm-hmm. especially being in being being in that wild world of surfing. And uh, I sold my surfboards the next day because I said I'm going to end up like that if if I if I keep this up. And decided I wanted to become a, a golf professional. My dad was Indiana State amateur, amateur champion, and he took me out and had me caddy a few times. And I thought, wow, this is really great. I don't want to be in an office yeah. five days a week. Let me do something. Let, let me do this golf thing. And of course, back then, if you were a PGA Class A pro, you could turn that in as a player's card and go play and qualify for any event you wanted to on Monday mornings. Uh-huh. Well, uh, I worked real hard for a year. I got to be a, a very good player. Took a lesson almost every day. I mean, completely driven, mm-hmm. completely driven, and uh, got in the apprentice program in '69, and got my card in '77. Well, the very year I got my card, I think it was '77 uh, that they started the tour school. <laughs> so, you know, even though I had a Class A PGA card, if I wanted to play the tour. I'd have to go to player school. Yeah. Well, player school and being a golf professional at a, at a club, there's no time to do both. For sure. So I got uh, I got married and and had uh, had my first firstborn, Jamie, and I thought, well, you know, I'm I'm not going to. I've got a nice job here mm-hmm. at Royal Oak, and uh, I'm not going to go out and play the tour. I'm gonna I'm gonna work as a golf professional in the business. And, and teach and uh, that's uh, and that's pretty much my story. I ended up in Clarksville because uh, Royal Oak was the sister club to Bay Hill. It had a 40-room motor lodge. In fact, uh, uh, Von Hagen and Dick Wilson built both places at the same time. They mm-hmm. would have they would have maybe the shaping crew at Royal Oak and and the seating crew at Bay Hill, they, they flip-flop back and forth. They build them at exactly the same time. So we had that 40-room motor lodge just like Bay Hill does. Yeah. But we had some members that would come down from from the country club in Clarksville, and uh, they let their head pro go, and one of the guys come up to me one day. He said, would you be interested in coming to Clarksville? And I said, well, you know, I'll, I'll look at it. And uh, make a long story short, I ended up at the country club, and, yeah, then they fire me, so I've got to got to pick myself back up again. And uh, you know, I had I had a, had a nice job there. Yeah, I I did well, but they wanted they wanted all the revenue. Yeah. So and that happens to a lot of golf pros. Sure did. But uh, especially in that era, especially in that time. Yeah, yeah. There aren't many pros that own the pro shop anymore. No, not not anymore. But um, anyway, ended up building the River Club, and life's great. Here you are. <laughs> yeah. Gotta love it. Well, Jim, I can't thank you enough for sharing your story and your time with me. Uh, obviously, uh, best of luck to you going forward. I know you're teaching a lot of golf and getting uh, that club fitting, which is such an in- integral part of being a good player is you got to get equipment that's fit for you. Exactly, yeah. But I, I always feel like at the end of the day, one of the most important things that we talked about today that I think is true is that if you're trying to compete at the game of golf – after you have a golf swing that's repeatable, seven minutes out of every ten should be practiced with the short game. Because if you're a person who believes you're always going to hit it good, you're gravely mistaken. And you that this is one of the greatest things I've ever heard from Stephen Yellen, who's one of the best sports psychologists I've ever known. He said, you know, 
if you believe that you're going to win golf tournaments because of your ball striking, how good you hit it, your ego is so falsely wrapped around how well you practice on the driving range that you'll never hit it good enough all the time to be successful. But it's a great short game that allows you to shoot 63 when you're hitting it good, but it also allows you to shoot 69 when you're not hitting it bad. And (laughs) and I've always found that the ego of a great ball striker is their nemesis. So once again, we go back all the way back to the very beginning of this podcast. The strength is also your weakness. If you're somebody who constantly stripes it all the time, this game is so stinking hard that even when you hit it great, it might not work out. But if you have no ability to turn three shots into two from just off off the green or make that putt you're not supposed to make occasionally more often than the rest, you're not preparing for that, golf is going to punish you because you're never going to be able to hit it that good to be able to overcome your bad days. And everybody's going to have a bad day. More than likely, one day in the four of a PGA Tour event, the winner held a round together. Held it, held it together when it was not going good. That's exactly right. And that kind of mirrors life. If you got your game, your life, based around some good quality fundamentals and you're working on the little things, the big th- things kind of take care of themselves but if you spend so much time on your big things that you're not paying attention to the the small things the short game so to speak Mm -hmm. when times are tough and you don't have the foundation things aren't going to go good you're going to play your way right out of it on on that on that one day that you didn't go well that's exactly only because you didn't practice it that's exactly right well i can't thank you enough for for this has been this has been fun i i I really enjoy uh talking with you you know uh, one professional to another and uh, anyway it's been great thanks virgil my pleasure buddy it's great to be with you all right cure is focused on providing natural alternatives to aid with current or previous medical conditions Cure does this by providing therapeutic properties of natural cannabinoid formulations for multiple uses, whether internally or externally. Ask your physical therapist or your primary care physician if cannabinoids are right for you, or check out their website, www.curemich.com. Cure, cannabis used for research and education. On the Verge is produced by Chase Akers. If you've enjoyed the show, leave a five-star rating and write a review. Click subscribe to make sure that you don't miss a single episode.